Love for God is simply not enough. Peter loved Jesus and he loved him genuinely. And yet his love for Jesus was not enough. Peter needed more than just love. He needed to hear and obey. Many passages of Scripture, you often, I think, hear me say things like, uh, the application of this passage is just simply look to Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Many passages just simply say that to us. Just look to Christ. Just look to Him and just see Him. And just adore Him and appreciate Him. This passage is not that way. This passage is rich in pragmatic application. And so let's endeavor to take a look at some of these I have in your notes six of these applications. There are many more. I have no doubt that there are many more, but here are six that I feel like just cannot be skipped over. Six applications of the passage. And for each of these applications, I trust that once we see these, all of us will see them. They're plain in the text. We need to have no no gymnastics with the text, no uh, word searches or investigations. They're all plain. They're all open. We'll see these all in the passage. And the first uh, application is this. Regardless of the clarity of the teacher, regardless of the insightfulness, regardless, regardless of the lucidness of the teaching, regardless of the, how well a teacher articulates the Scriptures, spiritual understanding cannot occur without a divine touch. You say, well, Pastor, you, you keep saying that same application. I'm not writing this. I'm just showing you where Mark is saying, how Mark is repeatedly bringing us back to the same theme, which is to say there is no spiritual comprehension that happens outside of a divine touch, outside of divine intervention. So let's think about this. Jesus Christ, we're told chapter 1, verse 1, is the Son of God. He is the perfectly filled man. He is the perfect man, perfectly filled by the Spirit which makes him the perfect teacher, which makes his teaching perfectly clear, perfectly articulate. Jesus' teaching is highly the, the maximum degree of understandableness. It could not be taught or preached better than Jesus did it. And furthermore, we're, we are told that Jesus now teaches this, what? Plainly. And yet what happens to Peter? Peter. He still misunderstands. He still fails to grasp. He still fails to get it. When the best teacher, when the perfect teacher is exposing these truths to him and doing so plainly, and as the text led us to believe, not just once, but repeatedly. When Peter yet has to understand the spiritual realities that Jesus is teaching him, we must step back and say, without divine intervention, this cannot happen. This can never happen. And furthermore, we cannot say, well, you know, this is really new. This is something Peter's never heard before. It's going to take Peter a little bit of time to kind of grasp this, to get his arms around it. And he's starting to. But you know, you can't expect too much of Peter because all of this is so new. you got to give him a little bit of time to absorb this. He's getting there. We can't say that. Why? Because of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 18, look at verse 31. And, talk, and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And everything that is written about the Son of Man. You see Jesus is teaching there. Everything that is written. In other words, Jesus is saying, this shouldn't be new, Peter. You've read this. This is in your scriptures. You've been exposed to this. You've seen this. You've read it. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise. That sounds pretty plain. That sounds pretty straightforward, pretty lucid, pretty articulate. Yet, they understood how many of those things? None. None. They weren't starting to get it. Jesus didn't need to just repeat himself a number of times and eventually they would catch on. They understood none of it. Why? This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. You see, without divine intervention, there will be no spiritual comprehension. The spiritual light will not go on short of God turning it on. Now, I realize we're in this difficult time, this odd sort of time, where Peter and the apostles are literally like the very end of the Old Testament era, a time in which, although they are physically with the Son of God, who is perfectly filled by the Spirit, the Spirit has yet not been given to the church. So I realize we're in that odd sort of time. But let's talk about ourselves and just apply this to ourselves. The truth is, Without divine intervention, none of us comprehend. But furthermore, here's the the bigger takeaway. Without divine intervention, the plainest, clearest teaching of the Word of God leads not to belief, but unbelief. You see that? It leads to adversity against the kingdom. It produces not just partial understanding. It doesn't produce indifference. Apart from the work of the Spirit, the preaching of the Word of God produces adversaries to the kingdom of God. That's what it produced in Peter. Was an adversary to the kingdom of God. Now, there are many ways that we could talk about how the Scriptures show us that's done. We'll leave that to perhaps Wednesday night if we want to return to that subject there. But here's the truth. The truth is this. It is simply not true to say... So-and-so doesn't believe, but it's better for them to be in church than not be in church. Hearing the gospel and not believing it is better than not hearing it at all. Not according to the Scriptures. Because what the Scriptures teach us is that the proclamation of God's Word is like a lightning rod. It's a dividing point. It separates the sheep from the goats in such a way that every time the Word of God is proclaimed, You have a decision to make, and you cannot avoid that decision. Right now, I am forcing you, by by preaching God's Word, I am forcing you either to believe and be drawn closer to God or disbelieve and be pushed further from Him. Those are the only two options. The proclamation of God's Word always moves people either further into belief or further into disbelief. And Jesus, the perfect teacher, the most articulate uh, teacher of the Scriptures, even He, apart from the work of the Spirit on Peter's heart, the result was that Peter is now acting adversarially to the kingdom of God. That's the first application. The second application is this. The adversary, Satan, we're we're shown something here about his nature, 
about His power and about His work. Now, let's be careful to remind ourselves that it is not our place to spend much time and effort understanding our enemy. Now, I understand that the, the philosophy of knowing your enemy, if you know your enemy, then you're better off. I understand that philosophy works in a lot of other areas of life, not in the kingdom of God. Because the scriptures never teach us that we are to devote time and effort to understanding our enemy. There are certain truths about our enemy that are presented in the scriptures. The scriptures will say certain things to us about how our enemy comes against us. And it says those things because the scriptures want us to know something about our enemy. But the scriptures spend far more time teaching you of your enemy within your own sin, because that's your real enemy is your enemy within. So the scriptures spend far more time helping you to understand your own sinfulness and even far more time than that, helping us to see the Christ. And so while we do not spend tremendous time understanding the nature of Satan and the work of Satan, nevertheless, when we're confronted with it in the scripture, we, we notice it and we call attention to it and we move on, which is what we'll do here. Because what we see the Satan doing here is what he is able to do. First, let's just state what he's not able to do. Satan is not able to control your thoughts. Satan is not able to exert his will over you. He's not able to make you sin, nor is he able to make you think anything. But here's what he can do. He can insinuate thoughts. He can imply thoughts. He can suggest thoughts. And sadly, many times that suggestion, we grasp it, we pick it up, and we run with it, and we take that thought and we make it ours. But that's all that he can do. This is what he does to Peter. Because Jesus credits Satan with the origin. Get behind me, Satan. So Satan can't make Peter think these thoughts. Satan can suggest it to Peter Peter's the one who picked it up and ran with it. So as he suggests these thoughts to, to Peter, he can do the same thing to us. He can suggest or imply or tempt with thoughts. Have you ever wondered, remember in Ephesians chapter 6, at the end of that armor of God passage, remember um, how we're told that the shield of faith is what we use to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy? Remember that passage? You ever wonder what the fiery darts are? That's what the fiery darts are. The fiery darts are suggestions or implications that the enemy can pose to suggest that you think mean thoughts of God or lowly thoughts of God or sinful thoughts. And so the enemy can suggest this and he does it to Peter. And the takeaway here for, the, for us is this. This is why the scriptures say to us to guard our tongues. Because in the moment of stress, in the moment of heat, in the moment in which we're taken off guard, that's when the enemy finds the opportune moment. And that's when the enemy can suggest those thoughts. And those thoughts, if you're not guarding your tongue, become words and words can never be unspoken. Peter can never unspeak the words that he spoke to Jesus on that day. Just like your words can never be unspoken. And that's where the enemy can have a field day. That's where he can have a playground is in the suggestion of things to the believer 
that in perhaps the heat of the moment or the anger of the moment or the chaos of the moment and we fail to guard our tongues well, those implied thoughts come out of our mouth and then the sin is done. So once again, just a reminder for us, set a guard over our hearts. Next, let's take a look at the next application here. We are always sinning. We are always sinning when we seek to spare God from the embarrassment of His own words. You see, this is what Peter did. This Peter takes Jesus aside, and as he takes Peter aside, I mean, as Peter takes Jesus aside, what is he doing as he taking him, he's taking him aside? He's seeking to spare Jesus a little bit of the embarrassment that's coming from a rebuke from a student. And we can almost, almost appreciate Peter for that, to say, well, at least he didn't do it in front of the other 11, even though the 11 clearly have talked about it. So he's seeking to save Jesus something of the embarrassment of a pupil coming to him and saying, okay, Jesus, I think we're sort of getting off the rails a little bit. You need to stop talking about dying. And in his attempt to save Jesus from the embarrassment of his own words, we see a sin that we can also fall into so plainly today because we are always sinning when we seek to save God from the embarrassment of his own words. How would we want to save God from the embarrassment of his own words? Well, the, the ways in which that temptation comes to us are myriad, aren't they? Some of the teachings of God's word that sort of rub against culture today, we know the ones that rub raw against the culture today. We can see those as maybe embarrassments or maybe other parts of the scripture that are hard to wrestle with. Just uh, yesterday, I started. I started wrestling with one of the most bizarre passages in Scripture, Genesis chapter 9, the drunkenness and nakedness of Noah. Isn't that a bizarre passage? Well, sometimes, wouldn't you, aren't you tempted to just say, wouldn't it be better if this just wasn't here? Isn't this kind of embarrassing when non-believers read these things in the Scriptures and, and they don't make sense or they seem so odd or so bizarre? Beware of ever seeking to save God the embarrassment of His own words. Because we always sin against Him when we know better than Him and we seek to save face for God. Now, are we ever called to save God from embarrassment of words? Yes. When the words are yours. We are most certainly called to save God the embarrassment of our words in our lives, when our lives don't match the teachings of His Scriptures. That's what Hebrews 6 and verse 6 is all about. That you are holding Him up to shame and contempt because you've tasted the goodness of God and yet found Him lacking and said, well, God's really, He's, he's really great, but He's not all that, you know. That's the embarrassment that we are called to save God against. But we are never, we are, in fact, just a little bit later in the passage. If you notice at the end of chapter 8, where Jesus will say, make this statement again, he who is ashamed of my words in this generation, guess what's coming? I'll be ashamed of him before the angels and before my Father who is in heaven. We never, we never are in the right when any part of our heart is embarrassed by anything that God has said and we seek to save him from that embarrassment. Next, and this is a difficult one for some of us but it's plain in the passage and all of us will see it. 
The enemy will often use adversaries to hinder the kingdom of God. And those adversaries that he will bring up against you will often be loved ones and family who are, and get this part, who are acting out of genuine love and concern. You see that in the passage? So let's ask ourselves this question. Did Peter love Jesus? Undoubtedly. That much is beyond question. Peter, for all his faults, loved Jesus. Peter's the only disciple that is ever recorded. Jesus asked him, do you love me? Three times. And then Peter gives that response that I dare say many of us would think twice about. Lord, you know everything. And knowing everything, you therefore know that I love you. Isn't that a bold response? Lord, you know my heart. My heart is bare to you and you know that I love you. And yet, Peter's love and concern for Christ. Peter didn't want to see these things happen to Jesus. The enemy uses the love that Peter had for Jesus to attempt to hinder the kingdom of God. And that's a big lesson to learn because the enemy does that in the lives of every believer. Every believer. What does God call of every child of God? What does God desire? What does, what's God's calling on every child of God? To sell yourself completely for Him. Isn't that His call upon us? To spend everything upon Him. To spend your life entirely upon Him. That's God's call upon every believer. Remember the parable of the pearl of great price, Matthew 13? The guy finds this pearl and it's so valuable, it's so precious that he goes and sells everything to have that. The pearl of great price is Christ. And that's God's call upon every believer to spend everything upon Him. And in the spending of everything upon Him, what often happens? Here's what often happens. And I've seen this happen more times than I care to remember in the body of Christ. Is God will place a call upon a man or a woman to do something for the Lord. And that something requires sacrifice. And other believers or other family members out of genuine love and concern will come and say, you know, don't. You're, you're, you're asking too much of yourself. You're doing too much. Don't exert yourself like that. God doesn't want you to wear yourself out. You ever heard that? God doesn't want you to wear yourself out. God wants you to save some for yourself. Really? I'm not sure what chapter and verse that's found in. But instead, what I find is the pearl was so valuable, the man went and sold everything. God calls every one of us to spend 
everything upon him. And don't hear in that spin, don't hear money. Hear self. That's what he asks. He holds out for you an eternity of riches. And he says, in this life, serve me with zeal. Serve me with abandon. Use up this life for me. And again, from the best of motives, from a genuine love and concern, oftentimes that believer will hear, take the pedal off the gas a little bit. Take your foot off the gas a little bit. Just slow up a little bit. God doesn't want you to just wear yourself out. Can you see this is what Peter was doing? Can you see this is how the adversary used Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Remember the story of Paul as Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, Acts 21. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. And what does Paul know is going to happen there? Because Jesus has told him. What does Paul know is going to happen? He knows he's going to be arrested. And he's, he knows he's going to end up in front of Caesar. And you remember as he comes together in Acts chapter 21 with those believers, and there's this guy, Agabus, whom we're told is a prophet, and he takes this belt and he ties his arms up with this belt and he says, this is what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest him. They're going to put him in prison. And we're never going to see him again. And do you remember the reaction? The people started pleading, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest you. And oh, Paul's reaction is pure gold. Verse 13 of Acts 21. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, what are you doing? Jesus has sent me there. He came to me in prison and told me I would be arrested. What are you doing trying to talk me out of what God has told me to do? Did they love Paul? You bet they love Paul. Remember Acts chapter 18, the, the, the last meeting with the Ephesian elders and how they were weeping because Paul said, you'll never see me again because I'm going to Jerusalem. And when I get there, they're going to arrest me. And they're weeping and pleading, don't do this, Paul. Save yourself, Paul. God doesn't want you to die. God doesn't want you to be put in prison. Paul was pretty bold. But he wasn't quite bold enough to say what he could have said, which was, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, adversary. For the adversary, for our adversary is using your love and your concern to hinder his kingdom. Now, the next application, we'll make this quick, but we do need to call attention to this, and it's this. Love for God is simply not enough. You see that in the passage? Love for God is simply not enough. Peter loved Jesus and he loved him genuinely. He and the apostle John were probably the two apostles that loved Jesus the deepest. And yet his love for Jesus was not enough. Peter needed more than just love. He needed to hear and obey. He needed to hear his words and obey his words because Jesus' words are often counter-instinctive or counterintuitive to what 
simple love would tell us. Love cannot be our only directive. Our love for Jesus must be guided and and directed by his words and by his teaching. The church today has gotten itself into such a foolish position because so many in the Western church culture have let love for God and pragmatism be the only gods. And they have led the church down paths of foolishness that are quite embarrassing. In the pathway of love for God and pragmatism in the culture, the Western church now, we have developed things like churches that are just for cowboys, churches that are just for truckers, churches that are just for bikers. There's even churches for people who don't like church. And I don't mean just a few. There's thousands of churches that exist by their own words because we're here for people who don't like church. Listen, if the pearl of great price is not precious enough that you can overlook some sort of churchiness that you don't particularly care for, he's not a very great pearl, is he? But in our love, in our pragmatism, we have allowed such foolishness to crop up today in the seeker-sensitive, let's make church as seeker-sensitive as we possibly can. And all of that came from, let's not question the motives, People that love Jesus. People that want to see Jesus' kingdom grow. Yet people who allowed love and pragmatism to be the only guide, and they never can be the only guide. That's what Peter was following. Peter loved Jesus, and Peter rightly saw, you know, this is kind of a problem. Our leader dying is, is sort of a problem. But Peter loved Jesus, and his pragmatism, they come together to give this wide open door for Satan to just march right on through. In our love for Jesus, we must not allow the hard doctrines, the doctrines of the sinfulness of man, the bloody atonement of the cross, uh, even the miraculous. We talked about this just this past Wednesday and how our love for Jesus might cause us to want to Take Jesus and redefine him just a little bit. Just lower him down just a little bit so that everybody can celebrate him. But to do that, what do we got to do? Well, we got to take some embarrassing things that he said out. We got to remove some of those embarrassing words. You see? Love for Jesus is simply not enough. Love for Jesus and pragmatism only will lead us to conceal or at least mute the most important truths of our faith. 